Our message today comes to us from Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And it reads like this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers unto his harvest. This is the blessed word of the Lord. Well, I have the privilege of teaching a couple classes at Montreat, and one of those is uh, hermeneutics, or the study of Scripture, how to study Scripture. And one of the things, some of my students are here, one of the things that we talk about is the incredible importance in hermeneutics of uh, context. And so, in order to really understand Matthew 35 through 38, uh, we need to push rewind a little bit and see what happened beforehand. What happened before Jesus made these, uh, this very uh, short uh, and to the point statement. And if you push rewind in the book of Matthew and more importantly in Jesus' life, what you discover when you push rewind is a remarkable journey through Galilee where Jesus interacts with people that I dare say you or I probably wouldn't. I'm just saying I'm afraid that if, if we were in Jesus' shoes or if we were accompanying Jesus, we would hesitate to do what he did. Uh, when we uh, see the Sermon on the Mount end, once the Sermon on the, on the Mount ends, what begins is really a spree of healings and interactions with some folks. And the first one is a leper. Jesus heals a leper. He touches a leper. And the profundity of that is that lepers were unclean. They were unclean for physical reasons because you could get leprosy. And they also were doomed to this life once they uh, had leprosy. They were doomed to this life of walking around. Uh, if they happened to intersect with other people, they had to shout out, Unclean, unclean. It became their mantra. It became their, uh, their, uh, their claim uh, of not fame, but of misfortune. Jesus healed in this time between the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 9, 35 through, 8, uh, through 38. Three different lepers he touched and healed their bodies. Uh, leprosy was not the only thing Jesus did. He encountered on two different occasions in the sandwich of time, demon-possessed men. He did not run from them. He went to them and he uh, took care and cast out the demons and interacted with demon-possessed men. 
He found himself on a boat and a storm came up. That's quite familiar with us. For this weekend, a storm came up, rocked the boat violently. Jesus was asleep. He was tired. The disciples are afraid. They wake him. He comes up. He calms the waves and they look at each other and ask this question. What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him because for a Jew to be able to have power over, for a Jew to be able to have power over the weather was the most remarkable miracle. And certainly, if we had seen someone step out this weekend when the storms were raging and said, stop, and they stopped just like that, it would stop us dead in our tracks, wouldn't it? Uh, So he calmed the storm. He made a statement that wouldn't garner uh, a lot of uh, followers. He said, uh, the creator, he is, said, the son of man has uh, uh, not a place to lay his head. The foxes have holes, birds have nests. He said, I'm homeless. I don't even have a place to sleep. He called Matthew. Who, in their right mind, would want an IRS agent on your team, right? Matthew, the tax collector, he called to himself. And and the reason that that is so profound is that Matthew uh, was a turncoat. He uh, collected taxes from his own people for the oppressive Roman regime. Uh, He called Matthew to be one of his disciples, But then there's that story that you love to read, but we don't get really in our culture. Uh, Jesus is walking through. His disciples are with him. They're trying to protect him. When he turns around in the crowd and says this ridiculous statement, somebody touched me. Well, duh. Of course, Jesus, you're in a crowd. Someone touched me, touched you, Peter says. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is different. They touched me and power left me. Something happened. There was a transaction in the touch that literally I can feel. And hovering back in the crowd somewhere is a woman who has a bleeding disorder that makes her unclean. She shouldn't even be in that crowd She shouldn't be touching anyone, nor should anyone be touching her. And she touches Jesus himself. And I imagine she expects to be ridiculed, right? She expects to be rebuked. Who do you think you are for touching Jesus? Or Jesus could say, who do you, I'm a rabbi, I should never be touched by a woman like you. And he sends her on her way. She is healed of her bleeding issue that had plagued her for 12 long years. And then we arrive at this moment. And when we arrive at this moment, it's as if there is a pause. Jesus has done all this remarkable work, and he pulls back. And there's a moment of reflection, and in this moment of reflection, we discover these words. Jesus went throughout all the cities, uh, teaching and proclaiming in their synagogues. We learn three principles you need to jot down from these three uh, verses. 
uh, four verses. Here they are. We must be pastors who preach like Jesus preached. We must be pastors who preach like Jesus preached. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. There's great meaning in that word proclaiming. The word proclaiming here means to announce as a herald. To announce as a herald. Well, how did that work? Well, this is before the days of uh, official news. You know, CNN, Fox, uh, uh, 6 o'clock news did not exist in that day. And Facebook was almost here, but not quite. So how did news get out? Here's how news got out. An official herald came into town. And if there was some urgent news, he shared it. A herald had a sense of urgency about what he shared. It could at times mean for that city life or death. And so Jesus had this sense of urgency. Uh, Secondly, a herald spoke. He was a trusted spokesman. He spoke with authority. Not only is there urgency in the message, there's authority in the messenger. There's something that's inherent in the message that results in this passionate, urgent plea. Matthew 7, 28, 29 say this, And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. Why? At his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. You see, the scribes would, uh, would pontificate about theories and about potential views of the law. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) took all of that law and said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and then he continued, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he shoved it right in their face. Passionate preaching will confront the hearer. Something happens when you hear passionate, authoritative preaching that causes you, if you're hungry, if you're searching, if you're seeking, to take a mirror, put it in front of yourself, and say, okay, God, what are you saying to me? What is it that I need to hear from your voice? And that, indeed, is what happened with Jesus' preaching pulpits must be filled with passionate preachers. Passionate preachers. Our number one value here at Grace, we have 10 values that define our church, and our number one value here at Grace is biblically based teaching and preaching. Secondly, we must be people who feel as Jesus felt. We must be pastors who preach as Jesus preached, and we must be people who feel as Jesus felt. Notice this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This word compassion is interesting. It is where we get our English word spleen or Bowel. It means to be moved deep into the gut. 
All right, so um, in Jesus' day, it was the deepest emotional word you could use uh, to describe a feeling. So uh, imagine today with if that were the, the same, right? Um, emojis, rather than being little red hearts, would be, I guess, yellow intestines or something. Because if you told somebody you loved him deep and you were passionately in love with him, it, 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 it's the word for bowels. It's kind of gross to us, but it was real to them. Jesus was moved deep into his gut. You say, Jerry, how does that translate? Here's how it translates. There ought to be times in your life when you encounter uh, humanity in such a way that it makes you sick at your stomach. You, you go, I, I just can't eat until I figure this out. I just don't know that I can see this pain, that I can see this hurt, that I can see this fear in this person's eyes and just go about my life. At some point, you ought to be so moved with the pain and the hurt and the helplessness around you that you pull away from the table and say, I'm not going to eat. I've got to hold off this, this deserves Everything I can give it to see what I can do about it. We have a new substandard housing team here, and Frank Ruiz leads that team. He's sitting here this morning. Some of you sitting here on that team. I see several of you who are. So we get referrals from the housing coalition, and once we get those referrals, then we check those referrals out. And right now, we have grant money to do roofs, and so that's what we're working on. Frank sends me an email, calls me, we talked this week. And the very word compassion is what I'm hearing in his voice. He says, Jerry, I showed up to a house. We're there to look at the roof. A couple kids come to the door. I knock on the door. They don't open the door. They ask who I am. I tell them I'm Frank Ruiz from Grace Community Church. When they heard Grace Community Church, they said, oh, yes, granddaddy is expecting him. And they opened the door. Frank goes in. Frank said, when I went in, I walked into the kitchen of this house, or the grandfather took him into the kitchen of this house, and I saw that the cabinets in the kitchen had had dropped four inches. The rain had now rotted the floor. And they're looking at dirt. He said, the grandfather then took me into the bathroom. And sure enough, in the bathroom floor, compromised. And this is exactly how Frank described it. He said, I looked on the sink and saw a little tooth, a toothbrush holder with three little toothbrushes in it. He said, Jerry, those 70-some-year-olds are raising their grandchildren in that what are we going to do about it he and I talked his team is meeting at four today Frank's brand new in this and immediately I knew he's the man for the job amen so glad to have him on the front end of this with his heart for the Lord, his heart for others. 
that kind of compassion is how Jesus felt. He, he did not become numb to humanity. He, he was moved to the gut. Why? He says that they were like sheep, harassed and helpless. The, the word harassed means weakened. The word helpless means to be thrown down. Ezekiel 34, it's a long passage, but it's worth listening to. I'll read it to you. He says, the word of the Lord, uh, Ezekiel's talking, came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Uh, God is calling out the shepherds of Israel because rather than shepherding the sheep, they're, they're, they're killing the very sheep they ought to shepherd and they're eating them. They're profiting, they're, they're full from sheep. He said, the weak you have not strengthened. Listen, there are many of you sitting in this room right now whom God has called into ministry. If you want your job description written out, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. That's our job. That is our job. Church, we must be the church who strengthens the weak, who heals the sick, who binds up the injured, who brings back those who have strayed, and who seeks the lost. Amen? Amen. That must be us as a church. And he says, you have not done that, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains. On every high hill, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep, notice they're Jesus' sheep, God's sheep. We'll discover later in this passage, Jesus is described as the Lord of the harvest. He, the harvest belongs to him. He says, my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God behold I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them it's a sad day when the chief shepherd has to rescue the sheep from would be opportunistic under shepherds who care nothing for the people to whom they preach, who care nothing for the people they pastor, who care nothing for the people who tune in to them on television and tell them everything they want to hear. But God says through Ezekiel, for Israel in that case, I will rescue my sheep 
if it be from the shepherd's mouth. Wow. Do you know the prevailing emotion there? It's anger. God is angry. And and there ought to be things that we encounter that result in righteous anger. Righteous indignation. Uh, ought to prevail. We ought to see things that break our hearts and that appeal to our love for others. Say, Jerry, how do you do it? This is your assignment for the week. Look in people's faces. Look in their eyes. And what will you see? You'll see it. You'll see the hurt. You, you will see it. I remember trekking to New York with uh, Adam and Rachel a few months ago when she went up there for treatment. I'd never been to New York City, and I discovered in that city nobody looks at anybody in the eye. You just don't do that. No one. Adam and I talked about it. We both were astounded by that. The lack of eye contact. You just look down always. Walking down the sidewalk, you look down. Never eye contact made on the streets of New York City. Why? You might just have to care. You might just have to do something about it. I remember years ago leading a trip of students on a mission trip into Boston. We were riding into Boston. We were on, I think, a van, and we looked over to our left. And as we were riding to, into the city of Boston, there lay a man on the sidewalk. He had, uh, it was hot, it was summer. I'm assuming he had passed out. He's lying on the sidewalk. And literally, literally, if this is this man lying on the sidewalk, uh, this is what happened? People stepped over him and kept walking down that busy sidewalk. It was early in the morning. People walk into work and they would just step over that man as teams of people. No one stopped. No one. Not a single human being as we drove. And, and for all of us from a small town, I remember everybody on our bus just stopping and we couldn't believe our eyes. There must be compassion. We must care. We must be people who feel as Jesus felt. We must be pastors who preach as Jesus preached. And then this is the fourth sermon in this series for parents. And this is where it hits us parents. Number three, we must be parents who prayed as Jesus prayed. We must be parents who pray as Jesus prayed. What did Jesus pray? You know what I find interesting all right, this is for my hermeneutic students. I did a structural diagram on this passage. And here's what I found interesting. The only imperative, the only command in this passage is the word pray. There isn't another. We observe how Jesus taught. We see how Jesus felt. But there's one command. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. As a matter of fact, the word is pray earnestly. It means to beg Beg the Lord of the harvest. What does that mean? I was watching the news a couple nights ago when the rain was coming in. Some of you may have seen the same news. And there's an apple farmer. And she says, 
Most of our crop we haven't even picked yet. But this is what the rain is doing to our apples. And so they zoomed in on some apples, and you saw large cracks down these apples. And she said, every apple that is cracked will be thrown away. Because along that crack, what do apples do? They brown, right? And they were browning. And she said, if we don't get some workers in this orchard, we could lose all, almost all of our crop. What is she saying? The harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. We've got to get somebody in here working. Now, if she just says, oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, need to get the TV cameras away because I'm going to pick apples all day, and hopefully I can get the apples. What's going to happen? She'll lose most of her crop. But if she gets other workers, the job will get done. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send. This word send is interesting. The word send means to lead one forth or away with a force he cannot resist. What does that mean? It means call. Call. When God calls you, when God sends you, he won't leave you alone until you do the job, will he? He won't. Uh, you'll know it's him. He won't leave you alone. He'll nag at you. He'll keep at you until you do what it is he's calling you to do. And so whatever it may be, you say, well, what does that look like? Are you speaking future, Jerry? Yes, tomorrow. Future is tomorrow. Where? At Montreat College. Your future is tomorrow. Where? At your workplace with your patients, with your students, with your clients, with your family. The call is to go, is to have this passion and this compassion for them and to, to go to pray that God would send workers into the harvest. Now, parents, here's where the rub comes because this is our tendency. Our tendency, number one, is to pray that our kids will be successful and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. We want successful kids. But that isn't ultimate. Our second tendency is to pray that our kids will be safe, secure. Uh, protect them from, and the list goes on and on. What, how we can apply this is God make our kids significant. May they matter in the world. May they make a difference in the world. When we pray for significance, there is a loosening of our kids out of our control that God may call them to do something that might make us uncomfortable. He may call them to go to a place that isn't so safe. 
He may call them out of their safety, out of their security. It may not be the most successful thing you would have planned up for your daughter or your son. It may not dot the I's and cross the T's, or it it may not sum up financially like you thought it should. He may not make near as much money as you anticipated he would make because he chose the way that God called him to. Are you okay with that, Mom? Dad? Or are you fine with that? Or do we settle for safety and success, whatever that may be? Uh, practically, I think we see this and that we feel a need to protect our kids from adversity. They go to school, they get a tough teacher, and when they go to school and get a tough teacher, we're the first ones down to bounce them out. Oh, my kid's not going to go through that. All right. Then, then when your kid gets to college, I don't think that prof cares what you think. Bounce in there all day. Tell him you don't want that. He's got one word. Transfer. At some point, adversity comes. Our kids will weather storms. It isn't our job to protect them from all of them now. We pray for significance for our kids. Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma, to Myanmar, he uh, met a girl named Anne. This was over 200 years ago. Met a girl named Anne and wanted to marry her. But he knew that God had called him to India, to Myanmar, to Buddhist territory. And so what should he do? So he wrote the following note to the father of Anne. This is what he said. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Well, that's the guy you want to marry your daughter, right? To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's a way 
to ask for a girl's hand in marriage, isn't it? Wow. Anne's father said yes. He never saw his daughter again or his son-in-law. They died in Burma, Myanmar. As a result of the Judson's ministry, today there are nearly 4,000 Baptist churches with more than a half million followers of Christ in Buddhist Burma and Myanmar. That's significance. Not necessarily success by the world's standards. Certainly, it's not safe. How significant is that? When I finished the early sermon, the young man walked up to me, and his first Sunday here, he said, I'll leave in two weeks for Burma to go share the gospel. Why can he go to Burma today? Because Adoniram and Anne went over 200 years ago. Say, well, Jerry, does that mean all of us will go to a place like that? No. But it means we all will go. How do you do this? Let me give you two or three practical things. Number one, choose prayerfully a passage of Scripture to pray for each of your children. Let God guide you in that. Choose a passage. When Hannah and my world collided in an awesome way when she was five, and then I became her dad when she was six. That passage was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Every day since then, I don't think a day has passed. Perhaps one has when I haven't prayed. God, I pray that Hannah would trust you with all her heart. I pray that she would not lean on her own understanding, but in all her ways acknowledge you and that you would make her path straight. I prayed that through elementary school when she called me Joey because she couldn't say her R's. I prayed that through middle school when she started playing volleyball and through high school and the perilous days of high school and college. But it was so meaningful this summer when we couldn't speak to her and we couldn't hear from her because she was somewhere in the Amazon sleeping outside, carrying her own food, live chickens in there to kill and eat, eating guinea pig, snake, whatever they could get. You better believe that in 
that time I prayed. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Make her paths straight. For Trent, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And I say, Lord, make Trent like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, so that in whatever he does, he prospers. I prayed that on the good days, and I prayed that through 11 surgeries with that kid. I prayed that through extreme anxiety where we honestly thought we had lost him for several months. Choose a passage. At the appropriate time, tell your kids what that passage is. That gives them some idea of your dream and goal for their lives. Whatever you pray for them, if you trust God, is what you hope to see happen. Number three, persist in that prayer. Through all the seasons and stages of their lives. You see, Wendy and I are very imperfect parents. You can ask either of our kids. They could tell you that. We've made our fair share of mistakes. But we've learned that we can never go wrong praying. When when we make a missed call, uh, we can always pray. Finally, when you leave today, there's a, a sheet that looks like this. It's super simple, but it's a great way to apply today's message. It's called a family action plan for how you're going to use Acts 1-8 and reach your Jerusalem, which is here, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, your family to be on mission to serve, to go, to share. Our our kids, I am convinced, are the answer to the gospel getting into the unreached parts of the world. I am convinced of that. As God sends us as we go, as we give, as we pray. He will work to send laborers into the harvest. For the harvest is plentiful. Oh, but the laborers are few. Let me pray for you. Lord, we recognize the need to go and the need to send and the need to, uh, the need to be used wonderfully by you. Father, as parents, we recognize our own weaknesses and your strength, our, uh, where we fall short and where you come in strong, and we know that you're able. I pray, Father, uh, that you would work through these parents even now. And then, Father, uh, I pray right now for students who are sitting here whom you are calling to serve you 
as pastors, as missionaries. Uh, They perhaps have never made that public. And in just a moment, when we sing together, they, uh, they may need to do that for the first time. They may need to publicly say, okay, God has called me. I can't let go of this. I pray that we, be, we would be the church who sends them out into the harvest. Father, in that line uh, of thinking, I pray for Josh, who's at PG, and Gail, who's at Friendship, and for Andrew over at East Marion. I pray for Alan Michael, who sits here and preaches to our children on Sundays and works with them on Sunday nights and counsels them throughout the week. And Adrian, who loves on our teenagers and preaches to them on Sunday nights and goes to ball games and spends time with them. God, I pray that we would see the harvest and that you would send us into the thick of it. Lord, we need you to do it. That's what this song is about. We recognize our inability to do it without you. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.